When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by James Fletcher, director of the new documentary, The Accidental President. And in conversation with Mark Mardell, they explored the very seeds of how Trumpism emerged as the prevailing ideology in the Republican Party and how Donald Trump came to not only win the election in 2016, but consume and transform what it meant to be a Republican. It's a really fascinating conversation about how the documentary was made and all the contributors who took part. And if you do enjoy it, The Accidental President is available on Apple TV, Amazon, iTunes and YouTube. Now we're going to play you a quick clip from the documentary and go to the episode. It was a perfect storm, really. From the very beginning, I think most people did see him as a joke. This is a TV star who knew how to work the medium of television. He was the first smash mouth shock jock candidate. Quiet. A lot of Americans like that stuff. He had a resonance that transcended logic. It was emotional. He just said whatever came to his mind. Crude, hypocritical, dishonest. That's already baked into your understanding of who he is. Trump can survive the unsurvivable. And we'll raise you four or five Clinton accusers. (laughs) As long as we keep responding as an audience, that's how they're going to try to win elections. Has our political framework changed? You can't go back now. Public has changed. Politics has changed. How does Donald Trump win? How does he not win? (laughs) See how much fun I had? Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Mark Mardell. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, James Fletcher. He's a British journalist and filmmaker who lives in the United States, and he's the director of a new documentary, The Accidental President, about the roots and course of Donald Trump's first campaign for the White House. Welcome, James. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. 
Lovely to have you here. Um, before we get on to the film itself, what do you think now the future for Trump is? He's issued a very strongly worded statement saying he's sticking around. I think, I think we all need to remember that in 2015, we probably said to each other once again, he's just doing this for attention and he won't really run. Now that he hasn't been found guilty in the impeachment, I think we all need to pay attention to the possibility that at the very least he will claim he's going to run in 2024 and thereby make himself the de facto American equivalent of leader of the opposition. But he now is legally able to run and there may be nowhere safer for him to hide than in the White House in his head. So I wouldn't ever write him off. And I think a lot of us who did in the past um, have had some fairly unpleasant lessons to learn as a result. And I think that's a really intriguing point, because one thing American politics always, nearly always lacks is the idea of somebody who, in effect, acts as the leader of the opposition. They, they, they wait till the last few months to choose their, their leader. That would be a significant change, wouldn't it? They really would. And, and of course, the Republicans have nobody... Um, at this stage, who would be an, a, an obvious successor to Trump. And he knows that perfectly well. And you just saw in the impeachment trial, people's votes were clearly motivated by an, a wish to remain in Trump's good graces. So I do think uh, in the absence of a serious challenger that I can't make out on the horizon, he's going to be around and going to be a, a threat or a force for quite some time to come. Well, I think we'll come back to some of those thoughts at the end. But first of all, why did you want to make this documentary? And why did you choose the particular style? No narrator, no commentary. I, first of all, I wanted to make the film because I thought, well, funny enough, when I first set out to do it, I thought uh, many people are going, going to be telling this story and it will probably never get lift off for that reason. And the more I spoke to people and the more I requested interviews, people said things like, well, I've, I was expecting to be asked to do this documentary ages ago and no one seems to be have done it so that was the first reason why why we saw it through to its conclusion and secondly because we had such an interesting panel of interviewees and it was an editing choice and a creative choice we we just felt there was no need for a narrator and and there's always the the the, the uh parallel problem with a narrator which is the first thing anyone does is look at their politics and say, oh, well, that person's liberal. So obviously this is a liberal firm, uh, film or that's a, you know, a, a right wing individual. So it's clearly leaning in the right direction. And we wanted to go down the middle and be as objective as possible. And one way I think to achieve that is not to have a narrator uh, that becomes a political issue all of its own. And that's, I think, quite important because everybody has strong opinions about Trump, but it's, he's almost too easy a target to take a punch at. In what, in what sense do you mean? Well, that if you do take a stance, quite a lot of sneering at him is, it's easy to do and a lot of people will agree with it. But yeah, if yes, you, yes. If you don't mean, try and be balanced, you, you're missing something, I think. That's right. I mean, and, and that's true. You know, cable news is full of people taking shots at Trump morning, noon and night. And we wanted to be a little deeper in our analysis of what happened. And of course, it wasn't just about Donald Trump. I'm talking about the 2016 election. It was the state of America. Obama was the outgoing president. There were huge parts of the electorate that had felt ignored for a long time. Uh, as we saw in Brexit in the UK, there were many voters extremely tired of the system as they saw it, Washington, uh, Westminster equivalent at home. And they wanted to stick two fingers up to the system. And it was a, the, the Trump phenomenon was a conflagration of events that just aligned perfectly to give him this run to the White House. You mentioned Brexit and you've made political adverts for David Cameron, Boris Johnson and for the Leave campaign. Did your, the, 
lessons that you learnt about Brexit then, even though you, I don't think you were a supporter of Brexit, did that feed into what you felt about Trump and the mood in America? Well, certainly you're right. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't vote for Brexit, but I've worked on campaigns all over the world just to explain. And, you know, I, I've always said it's incredibly important that people on campaigns are not emotionally invested in the, in the cause or the candidate because it, it takes away the objectivity that, in my opinion, is really important in political communication. Brexit and Trump had serious parallels in that I did not see Brexit uh, as, as an impending win. But when it did happen the Brexit, for the Brexit campaign, I thought it's entirely possible Trump could now win in America. I definitely didn't call it for him, but it allowed me to think there is a populism rising and this may well happen in America as well. One of your guests says early on that he, Trump, wanted to provoke a conversation about himself and it's called the accidental president. Do you think that initially he didn't want it then? Uh, my, my view is that I think this is a publicity stunt that got out of hand. I think it, I mean, and the evidence for it is he didn't have a serious campaign set up in the way uh, a, a, someone who wants to be president normally does. There weren't PACs formed. There weren't serious fundraising committees. There weren't po polling operations. There weren't ground operations that would suggest this is a really serious political ambition. I think, and people have said, you know, back in the past when he was promoting books and stuff, and he had done so over many years, he would hint at the possibility of running for the presidency and everyone would, you know, have, it would provoke very strong reactions. But this time, obviously, it, I, I think, you know, he put his name forward and I think he was as amazed as anyone by the traction he gained and how quickly it, it happened. And it really started with his questioning of, Obama's birth certificate. I remember being out on a story about the economy and having to rush back to DC to do it. And I hadn't really, Trump hadn't really crossed my radar, but he certainly dominated the news for the next month after that. That's right. And as, as another commentator says in the film, you know, uh, the main currency now is attention. And Trump's skill, probably above anything else, is his ability to demand attention, command attention, and 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 take over the entire oxygen of publicity, whatever is going on in the news cycle. And we saw that repeatedly in the 2015-2016 campaign. One of the things that really struck me about the film, which I hadn't picked up on, was the way that just using nicknames for people really got traction, really sort of put him up there as the, as the main protagonist. It really did. And, and as, as another commentator says, you know, the fact that he was the one assigning nicknames gave him a sense of authority. And the pollster Frank Luntz made it clear that in his focus groups, these names were really sticking. So when people referred to Ted Cruz, without provocation, member panels in, members of the panel in the focus group would say, oh, lion Ted Cruz, uh, you know, crooked Hillary, little Marco. So I think they were tremendously effective in downgrading the importance and significance of his opponents. And somebody said that you couldn't watch Jeb Bush again without thinking low energy. It's very striking use of the footage of him. It just does feel, shh, the air's going out of the room. <laughs> That's right. And the fact that Trump came to prominence, well, I suppose he came to prominence as a business person, first of all, but as a reality TV star was how most of America knew him. How important is that? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, there's no question, again, if you talk about attention... If you've had however many series it was of The Apprentice, which had, you know, Trump was obsessed with ratings, but it had done well and it was renewed and it was, it was a, therefore a successful show. It meant that in a lot of people's minds in America, 
this is a very successful individual. And polling had always shown, as Kellyanne Conway explained, explained to me, actually, we didn't have it in the film, but she said over many years of polling, Americans had always said they wanted a business business person to run the country and they thought those skills lent themselves very, very well to the task. Well, if you look at The Apprentice, that's exactly what happened on a weekly basis. All the luminaries of, of the business world in the, in the non-celebrity version and then celebrities all calling in Mr. Trump and treating him like this sort of chairman character. I mean, it played absolutely into the hands of people who wanted to believe a business person could be very successful at managing for want of a better word, the United States of America. And I think that's lingered. I mean, in the last election, uh, unfortunately I wasn't out in the States for obvious reasons, but I mean, talking to people from my home here and uh, doing interviews with them for the BBC, a lot of people who didn't like Trump's style, didn't like his his vulgarity, said, but he's a business person. We need a business person to run America. So it's still a strength, I think. Oh, I think unquestionably. I mean, that if you if the alternative is a career politician... It, I, I, th- I think we've seen it at home and, and in other, other countries as well. People like to see a previous life or a previous skill set, which is much, which has much more to offer than literally having strolled out of university into a political job. And somebody else makes an intriguing point about um, the reality TV star business, that in reality TV, often the villain, the bad guy, the tough guy is the star. That's right. And I think... Again, Trump has this, uh, you know, we can all laugh at him and, and to, I think to our peril laugh at him. And this is really what he took advantage of is that people took, spent more time laugh at, laughing at him than challenging him. But again, he knew the, the, the pantomime villain r- r- role is the thing that draws attention and, and people enjoy, as, as someone else said, they enjoy the, the comedy and the humor of it. And he gives people a good time. He gives people a good time at a rally with his thoughts that are... It's basically a freestyle event of him just basically, as musicians say, jamming. He's just on the stump saying what comes to his head. And of course, his rallies were like a live focus group. So he had the immediate th- feedback of 20,000 people. And like a stand-up comic, he was therefore able to very quickly work out what material works and what material doesn't work, meaning what material is entertaining and compelling versus the stuff that people don't react to. And I think it's something that people miss in the horror and the short soundbite, that he is actually quite funny, he is quite amusing. If you take away what you might think of him politically if you don't like him, it's, it's quite entertaining. I would defy many people to tell me they never had a laugh at his expense that they didn't carry on watching because they couldn't wait to hear what he would say next and enjoy the horror and blood insanity of it. This is the reason people that profess to hate Howard Stern used to listen to him so much because they always wanted to know what he would say next. And this is a trope in in reality television and entertainment that you need to keep the audience hooked and that is something Trump is very, very good at. And he is also very good at trampling all over anyone else's attention. So, for example, one of his opponents could be on a live television uh, interview and he would know perfectly well that all he needed to do was tweet something and suddenly there'd be, a, 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 you know, the, the producer would be speaking in the presenter's ear saying, sorry, sorry, Mr. Mardell, we need to take you off uh, in a different direction because Donald Trump has just tweeted X. And so the whole narrative shifts. And that is very effective in political campaigning. So this merging of entertainment techniques and serious politics, what does it say about America and Americans? Well, it says that it works and that in a world, I, I think I think we are probably 
as guilty of it at home as well. People want very short messages to feed a very low attention span. Um, I mean, you knew this was going somewhere when in the last two years, you may recall, people were saying the only person that could really challenge Donald Trump is Oprah Winfrey, meaning that, you know, celebrity and all that nonsense is the prime currency. Um, and, you know, people have said it much better than me. But in the end, countries get the leaders they deserve. And if that's your standard, then that's what you're going to get. We mentioned the birth certificate. I mean, something else that people would say was behind Trump's appeal for all the things that you've talked about was pure and simple racism, that people didn't like Obama on grounds of his race. They felt affronted. They felt their white privilege was challenged. And Trump provided an outlet for that. I think there's no question that he understood there was an audience that were uh, that would gravitate towards that message. And there's a great line in the film from Van Jones who says, there are a lot of people for whom racism is not a dis- disqualifying factor, meaning voters could say, well, I'm not racist, but I understand other people are. And, you know, I I mean, it's not me, but it's them. But, you know, we'll all just move ahead together instead of saying it's absolutely disgusting and totally unacceptable. And when it came to the presidential itself, when he won the nomination, Hillary does emerge from your film as a pretty dreadful candidate. Well, I think to be fair to Hillary Clinton, I, I, I mean... I, I'm, I'm still, I still haven't entirely made up my mind where I am on Hillary Clinton. Clearly, she was very qualified and ready to lead in many ways, but her campaign was terrible. They made appalling errors that if someone is as qualified and as ready to lead as obviously she believed herself to be and many others did too, they should not have made some unforgivable errors um, in, for example, relying on data and on a data operation managed from New York City that told her she didn't need to go and visit the state of Wisconsin, which she didn't do after the Democratic Convention. And, you know, I could go on and on, but they, you know, she also had a a policy of staying away from the press, whereas Trump went and spoke to anybody from a YouTube, a YouTube channel to the BBC, to the biggest news outlets in America. And, that was a terrible judgment by the Clinton campaign because she was literally shielded from the press with layers of, of gatekeepers and all that kind of stuff. And she seemed aloof. The Clintons had been seen to make a lot of money after Bill Clinton left office. And it was easy to paint her as a character that was out of touch. And of course, the crooked Hillary moniker that Trump ascribed to her was very damaging because if you felt in any way the Clintons weren't as clean as you'd like them to have been. It, it, it was easy to fall into the the, the, uh, the trap of Crooked Hillary. And then, of course, the FBI problem arose with the emails, which added another layer to that perception that the Clintons were bad news in, in, in a moral sense. And for all the obvious differences between the candidates and the, the way that that would play out, the one thing I find baffling is, is the failure, the political failure to focus on the swing states, which is just so... ABC. So ABC. I mean, Michigan, for example, Bernie Sanders beats her in Michigan and, and the ground game is not amped up to the absolute maximum to recover that state. It again is assumed it's, it's a Democrat state and, and, and life will go on. And there was not the effort put into Michigan that there clearly should have been. And once those Rust Belt states started falling, and again, Trump recognized that weakness or people in his, in his operation did and, 
you know, another very simple thing. You know, Trump spent more time on the air at rallies around the country than Clinton did. Just pure fact. And she was spotted in the Hamptons, the playground of the rich, during the month of August in the run-up to the election, fundraising and all that kind of stuff. And again, it was very easy to paint her as someone who was out of touch, whereas, you know, Trump was in his, in his, in his jet flying around saying, I'll make America great again and I'll bring your jobs back and telling those, those populations what they wanted to hear to excite them and get their support, which ultimately was very effective for him, as I say, in, in, the, in those northern states. And one of the most uh, effective montages in the film is when you ask people, what was Trump's slogan? What was on his hat? Make America great again, they all say. What was Hillary's slogan? Uh, now, was it stronger together or was it... <laughs> I'm with her. Uh, mm, I love that, but it was great. It made a really serious point. But it also had me pondering, I mean, how much... I mean, again, pretty basic politics, however complex your policies are, sum them up, you know... Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. You need a slogan. Well, that's right. And, and if I say to you, you know, whose slogan was, yes, we can, we all know it as Obama's. And part of the reason we know it as Obama's is because he stuck to that one message. Hillary Clinton changed her message, uh, her slogan four times during the election. And in the, uh, in the email, the WikiLeaks email uh, cache, there was a, a, an email of, I mean, it just went on and on of more ideas for a campaign slogan that might resonate better with the with the audience she had uh, I'm with you fighting I, I just I can't even remember them and I, I, I spent two years making a film about it but you know the, what, the 101 rule of a great of a, of a great slogan you know Nike just do it is you keep to your message you don't change it and they, they changed chopped and changed which spoke volumes frankly about the campaign and it just led to confusion so there are lots of lessons to be learned for politicians of all, all types but the very important question right at the end from one of your guests is, was it a fluke? Was it? Yeah. Well, we may find out, Mark. I mean, you know, in 2024, you'll have a president aged 82 who one hopes health-wise will make it to 2024, joking apart. You know, I, I don't think it's untoward to say Joe Biden is not in premium condition. Trump could well re-emerge. I just, he just can't help himself. Now, whether he ultimately becomes the GOP nominee is another matter. Whether he actually throws his hat in the ring is another matter. But is it a fluke? Well, 2024 is probably the year that I'll answer that question for you. Yeah. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I mean, there's always loose talk, and I say loose talk because it never seems to work either in the USA or the UK, of a third party, another party emerging. He he would lead separate from the Republicans. What do you think? Well, I mean, there's been talk. I think it's he's, the name's been the, the, the Liberty Party. I mean, he could do it. And we all know what happens. It divides the Republican vote and waves the Democrats in. So strategically, it's a disaster if that's what you're trying to, if you're trying to say you want a right wing party, then you, you're killing yourself straight away. And we saw that in the um, Bush Gore election where um, Ralph Nader appeared and took away a, a substantial number of votes from Al Gore. So strategically, it's a disaster because it just, there are, I can't think, you, you've been doing this much longer than me, but I can't think of an example of a successful third party emerging and taking power in a very short space of time. I mean, in one election cycle. Not in our systems, no. I suppose you can right. see Macron in France, but it's very difficult in the United States or yeah. UK. And they act as ginger groups, like UKIP did on, on the existing big exactly. parties and move them to the right. And that, I mean, where do you think the Republican Party is going? So I, I've said they move to the right. I mean, during my time there, we saw the Tea Party virtually take them over. I remember talking to people in Washington who said, when I was joined the party when I came to Washington I was seen as an extremist now I'm seen as a rhino a Republican in name only I mean it has moved a lot it's a great question I mean you know there's 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 the problem the Republicans have is that by now you would hope there would be a an obvious replacement to Trump whether it's in his mold or, or the exact opposite of him but it is not obvious to me where the Republicans would be aiming their attention for a new leader. I just don't know who that person is. There's talk of Nikki Haley. There are various other names mentioned. But first of all, to most people, these are not well known. And you have a, a very big problem on your hands if you're trying to introduce a new candidate in the shadow of Trump. So that could also mean that a viable candidate thinks, you know what, I won't do 2024. I'll wait till 2028 because I don't want the Trump problem anywhere near me. I suspect... They are in total disarray. I mean, it was interesting in 2015-16 that you had a very serious field of candidates, but ultimately no interesting ideas about how to communicate or how to campaign, which is why they all blurred into nothing when Trump appeared. So unless some magic is found very quickly in the Republican machinery, I can see them fluffing it again. And there seems to be an appetite for much less vulgarity, much more straight down the middle, but not necessarily mainstream conservatism, the lines on race and immigration would still remain, I think. I mean, clearly a lot of people voted for Trump because it allowed them to express those opinions which had been previously dismissed out of hand. And I I think 
That was also the case in UK politics, you know, and both countries can learn from that. But there's no doubt there is a huge amount of people in America that are very bothered by these things and want someone to represent their opinions. And I think if that is not understood, it will be an, a massive problem going forward. Yes, because even if Trump goes away, and we've said that's unlikely, Trump supporters won't go away and won't change their minds on why they supported him. That's right. And, and, and the first thing any new campaign does is they poll the people likely to vote for them and they will discover very quickly what the concerns are of, the, of, of those people. And then they'll have to have a conversation, well, do I want their vote or don't I want their vote? And if I do want their vote, then I'm going to have to talk to them about the things they care about. And if I don't do that, then I'm, I'm wasting my time, if, uh, you know, in the sense that I'm talking myself out of winning if I won't address the issues these people care about. How do you think America feels now under a Biden presidency? Uh, I don't know yet because, to his credit, Biden has got on with a bit, as new presidents do, and under normal circumstances, you know, he's he's doing his first hundred days, thinking about what he's going to do, and has stayed largely away from the media in the sense of in the attention seeking sense. Uh, he did a town hall the other day on CNN where he was, you know, challenged on a number of issues and answered them very sensibly. But I think that the entertainment and the razzmatazz that Trump brought to the presidency, people were tired of. And it, and it was funny until it wasn't. And by that, I mean, when COVID came along and those skills were totally inappropriate for managing a global pandemic. And Trump obviously did very badly in that role. And I think it damaged him enormously. And, and funnily enough, when the pandemic came along, a number of people said, and I agree with them, that this could be the thing that hurts Trump the most, other than himself in the election cycle. He was his own his own worst enemy in the election too. Because he didn't get the mood right at the time. He didn't get the mood right. He was also massively restricted by the pandemic. I mean, he did have rallies, but he didn't have the... He couldn't assemble people in the way he had done previously. Um, and, and the Biden campaign very sensibly let kept... Joe Biden fairly quiet and in his basement in Delaware and Trump, you know, ran himself into the ground. His own bad behavior, you know, exposed him in a way that I don't think people had thought about in the previous election because it was so entertaining. But when it was just him against himself, it wasn't entertaining. And it was a, if it was a different, it was a different, it felt very different. So it's too soon for your journalistic friends and colleagues to be missing Trump. Oh, there's no question in the American media. Listen, Trump has delivered a huge amount of money to the bottom line of American media organizations. And you'd struggle to find the boss of any of them tell you that Trump uh, hadn't improved their fortunes or that they were able to ignore him and by, by extension, ignore the money he brings. Just no question about it. And we have a, a, a clip from Les Moonves, the, the former C, uh, president of CBS, who said, you know, Trump might not be good for the country, but he's damn good for our ratings. And that was the attitude, no question, in 2016. And I have no doubt, even now, as and when Trump works out how to communicate with the electorate again, whether it's a website or a TV product, you know, he, he will solve his Twitter problem and he will find a way to connect once again. And the minute he does and the minute he says outrageous things, don't you worry, all the news stations prof professing to have had enough of him will be covering him morning, noon and night. What are the lessons for Britain? Obviously, America has all long had a bipartisan broadcast media. We don't really yet, but there's talk of a right-wing news station being set up. I don't know how that gets around Ofcom rules, but no doubt it will. 
I under, my understanding going around the Ofcom rules is that if they if they deliver in an over the top way as it's now described, they can somehow circumvent Ofcom. But we'll 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 see. It's whether or not they choose to. I, I'm also told they may agree to follow Ofcom, but we'll 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 see how that journey goes. Sorry, ask about the. the what, do you, what do you mean about the over the top ways? Just to... uh, meaning that uh, it's the phrase that describes how Netflix connects to a TV. So it's uh, it's 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 all delivered online. It's it's the new sort of buzzword for Disney Plus, uh, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and all that stuff. They're described as over the top delivery devices. I thought you meant over the top content. <laughs> I thought exactly that too. So I've had to. OTT has well, no, so there may be a technological solution, but what do you think of it? Um, sort of stepping back, the idea of a right or left wing media in Britain. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Fox News is clearly a, a ludicrous news product. My question is, and I've always wondered, wondered this, is Fox News converting anyone into a, a right-wing firebrand? Probably not. I think almost definitely not. But it keeps people that think that way fed and watered. So, I, I mean, we've always had, we've had it in, in, in print media at home that, you know, the Mirror and the Sun, the Guardian and Telegraph traditionally had fairly partisan positions. I would argue less so now than they, they once did. But... You know, look, every election is won in the middle ground. Is that the case that, that it's done by CNN on the left, by Fox on the right, MSNBC left of CNN? I don't know. I, I personally don't believe it is. I think voters, as in any democracy, make up, make their decisions based on money, circumstances particular to them, uh, and their, and their gut reaction to the candidates. And I think those media organisations want to take far more credit than they're due for the effect they have on the electorate. I think what Fox News did in the early Obama years when I was covering the rise of the Tea Party was give people a feeling of confidence, not that they were converted by what was said on Fox, but there are other people out there like me who feel exactly the same and they can say it and they can say it out loud. And I think I think that's absolutely right. And I think, and, and I think that's effectively what... Any any media organisation with a with a with a particular slant does. I think it, it it does exactly that. It gives a sense of belonging and ability to you know ventilate your opinions, even if they're a little bit close to the mark. People are feel feel they empowered to do so because they're part of something. And finally, what would you want people to take away from this film? Well, I think I think there are lessons to be learned. I mean, those of us that dismissed, like and I utterly include myself in this, who dismissed Trump straight away, I think we have lessons to learn about our opponents. I think we need to recognise threats for what they are. I think the the same thing that happened in America can, in, in a sense, I mean, it has happened in uh, the Ukraine uh, recently. You know, famous populists can become leaders of the country and. To a different, in a different way, Boris Johnson is very similar to, to, to Trump in that he has mastered the art of, of attention. That's what his prime talent is. And, and as a political campaigner, um, he always gets the, the spotlight where others don't. And I know it used to drive a lot of conservative MPs absolutely around the bend. So, you know, in, in modern campaigning, you have to think about where are the, what are the new technologies? And how can I exploit them best? I mean, in the film, we, someone says, 
uh, you know, FDR managed radio. JF succeeded on radio. JFK succeeded on television. Barack Obama took advantage of the nascent internet. You know, he was pre-smartphone even. It's hard to imagine, but that's where, where he came into the race. And of course, Trump took advantage of Twitter. Every campaign, wherever, wherever it may be, will, will favor the candidate that connects with the electorate in the way at that time they're all taking advantage of. So the smartphone was the, was the weapon of choice in 2016. And it may be different apps or different products in the future, but you can't be locked into the past saying, well, if in 2024 you say we're going to run a Twitter based campaign, forget it. It's not going to work. You've got to be more creative and innovative than that. I don't know. I can't imagine what that is or what it looks like, but it's very, very important to be absolutely in tune with the technologies and communication that the electorate are using at that time. So we'll be looking out for the new technology of 2024. Thanks, James, for a fascinating conversation. I'm Mark Modell, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.